Welcome to another episode of the I Am Podcast. I'm Johnny Wilkinson and I really appreciate you being here with me today. I've got a very special offer from our podcast partner that I don't think you're going to want to miss. As you know by now at I Am, we're passionate about exploring performance and potential. We often look at this through the body, how the food we consume affects us. And this is why we've partnered with Vivo Life, who have devoted themselves to understanding how our nutrition plays a significant role in our growth, both physically and mentally. Their products are formulated by nutritionists and are 100% natural, making them the perfect choice for anyone looking to take their well-being to the next level. A big favourite at the Iron Podcast is their Perform Plant Protein, especially in cacao flavour, and their plant-based Omega-3 made from high-potency algae oil. Whichever you choose, you'll quickly understand why Vivo Life products are award-winning when you try them out. Plus, their products are delivered straight to your doorstep via carbon-neutral delivery. Vivo Life really embodies the spirit of our podcast, and we're really keen for you guys to try the products yourselves. So they agreed to run their biggest ever discount exclusively for I Am listeners. The code is I Am Podcast, all in capital letters, which will give new customers 40% off their first order and a further 15% off when they subscribe. The offer ends soon, so don't miss out. Check out their full range of products at www.vivolife.co.uk to discover how they can help you unlock your full potential. Hi there, and thanks for being with me here on the I Am Podcast again. So the adventure continues this week with Chris Dorji Walker. He's a mentor, a qualified Western psychology practitioner, Eastern Qigong Buddhist and meditation specialist, and spiritual guide to boot. He's joining me on the Thursday main guest episode to explore peace, performance, and potential. With such an array of skills and experience, well, this was always going to be a full-on wide-ranging discussion. Chris is someone that I know through working together. I love, always have loved his calm demeanor, also his ability to empathize and resonate. He's had his own challenges and I'm sure that these, along with his humility and his gift, are what help him to connect. He's got that student of life mentality. He's had remarkable teachers and gurus all around the globe and has devoted himself to learning all that he can from them and then passing it on. So we cover loads of interesting subject areas in this one. I'm confident somewhere it's going to inspire curiosity, it's going to encourage growth and maybe even help resolving some inner conflict. I hope you enjoy it. So thanks hugely to Chris Dorji Walker. Please do check him out. He's such an interesting guy, someone that's really, really helped me, had a huge, huge impact upon my journey. And hopefully he will have something similar of an effect upon yours too. Thanks so much for allowing me the time to go on these little meanderings with you. I would love to hear your thoughts as ever and also any questions you have too. If there's anything that you want to ask or you want explained or anything that just seems way out there, anything you want to add to, please do. I'd love this to be much more of a two-way street. Wishing you really, really well. Until next week, enjoy the podcast. My name's Johnny Wilkinson. This is the I Am Podcast with Chris Dorji Walker. Chris Dorji, oh, this is an awesome pleasure to get to explore all about human potential from your perspective. You've been, for me, a very important 
sounding board guide in some ways throughout my time. So this is a real pleasure to be able to put you on the stage and hear what you've got to say. So first of all, how are you on this fine day? Yeah, doing well. Thanks, Johnny. It's great to be here. I was really happy to be invited by you and a reconnect. So that's yeah, nice. definitely. Would you be able to give us a summary, if you like, of, and we'll get onto the deeper depths of it, but maybe what you do and how you come up sort of yeah. this subject right now? Yeah, sure. Okay. I grew up in Australia, grew up regular kind of kid in Australia. We live on the beach, a lot of us, so surfing is a pretty normal thing. So I grew up just surfing on the beaches and living a, probably a pretty regular life. Then it was in my late teens that I ended up training a lot in martial arts and I was a very active sporting kind of person and I ended up constantly fatigued, getting ill, getting lots of colds, slowly got worse and worse until our family doctor who'd been my doctor since I was quite a young kid, he said, oh, you. this is in the early 90s, oh, you've got this thing that they're calling chronic fatigue syndrome, some kind of post-viral fatigue and I'd had glandular fever And off the back of that glandular fever, I just wasn't recovering. And so that sent me on a journey that was probably twofold. On one hand, it was a spiritual, psychological kind of journey. And on the other hand, it was about physically healing myself and learning how to, you know, about diet, about well-being, all this kind of stuff. And one thing led to another. I found a Chinese Qigong master who was doing herbs and he was teaching me Qigong. And because of my background in martial arts, it was a natural kind of progression because I was too sick to train. I'd just done my first stand and I just couldn't train anymore. So then the Qigong was a great way of, I guess, taking some of the aspects of martial arts but applying it towards self-healing and spiritual pursuit. Around that time, I also met a meditation teacher, a woman who lived out the back of the Gold Coast where I grew up in Queensland, in Australia. And she was a psychologist by trade, as it were, but she was a spiritual teacher. And so I connected with her and a lot of older people. And between her and my Qigong master, I just went really down the rabbit hole of meditation. And through practicing meditation, Qigong, my health started to recover. I got really into alternative therapies and I met loads of practitioners. It was a natural academy at that time on the Gold Coast, lots of acupuncturists, nutritionists, end up living in a house with all of these kind of like semi-hippie natural therapy (laughs) kind of types. And it was very, very fringe back then. It wasn't like now where it's very professional and mainstream. The early 90s, meditation, yoga, all of these things were sort of very fringy and very alternative, where now they're quite mainstream, as you well know. So from there, I was recovered. My Qigong master started to invite me to to teach with him so he could barely speak English. He'd come from China. He was both a Western medical doctor and a Chinese traditional medicine doctor. So we were treating patients together. I was learning herbs. And then my meditation teacher, Gloria, said, you should make this your life. This is your calling. And when I was like, by this stage, I was probably 20, 21 years old. I got sick when I was about 18. When I was 18, I had just started an apprenticeship as an electrician. So it was like four years this process went on. The end of my apprenticeship, that's when Gloria said, so we're going to India. 
That was wild. She basically took me to India. We went to different monasteries and stuff. And then she said, right, you're on your own. And she left. And (laughs) I was like this babe in the woods just wandering around in India, going to see different kind of gurus and Buddhist masters. And I was curious about all of the kind of mystical layers that that country particularly and Asia in general sort of are known for. And one thing led to another and I kept meeting different teachers. And then finally, I met a Tibetan Rinpoche who took me under his wing. And I ended up coming to the UK of all places. And my mother, my parents separated, I was quite young. My mother was living in the UK. Up on the border of England and Scotland, there's some Buddhist centers and stuff. This Tibetan master, who sadly he's passed away now, he and I just really clicked and he ordained me as a monk and I lived with him and traveled with him for five years until finally, I think at the end of that five years, we went into a deep retreat together for nine months in total isolation. So I did like a solitary confinement kind of thing because he was a great yogi and meditator. And so after that, he was like, I had the feeling as well that I wanted to be out in the world with the regular people. I didn't want to be cloistered away, preaching to the converted, as it were, but rather I wanted to road test what I'd learned. And so I went back to Australia and I enrolled for somatic psychotherapy training in Sydney. And it was a postgraduate kind of training that they were offering, but they took my five-year kind of monastic study as a sort of undergrad. And a lot of them were really into Buddhism and stuff like Buddhism and psychotherapy has become a thing in certain circles. And so they were very kind and accepted me. And that was a five-year training where we study the psychodynamic, traditional psychotherapy, but also the somatic, the body orientated. And so it was after that kind of that was by then it was like early to mid 2000s I started to gain some notoriety in Sydney meditation became and yoga became very much all of a sudden to the forefront I'd set up a meditation program at a health retreat called the Golden Door they approached me and said can you know we think meditation's going to be the next big thing can you set up a kind of program for us and I did that and I started seeing a lot of clients one-on-one in Sydney and started doing groups and one thing led to another and that's in a way my background is it's a bit unusual I kept still a surfer lots of twists and turns along the way yeah so I kind of work as a meditation teacher mentor I kind of occupy more a space of a mentor in some ways so I don't have the restrictions say of a classic therapeutic model as a therapist as such yeah i want to get into loads on that the first one i want to start with <laughs> <laughs> i wanted to pause you but i was like no it's got a lovely flow to it so i'm gonna come back to a little bit at the beginning so you mentioned yeah. okay so you're younger and you've got the health issues mm. but there seems to be something else going on there already there's the martial arts but then you're saying you're in that regular kid space but you've got health issues maybe the regular journey looks a bit more like, oh, you know, so we try out these medicines, do courses on this and try this. And, but actually that's gone quite niche and extreme quite quickly in terms of yeah. meditation and what have you. What do you think is going on in you in that younger well, stage? Reading between the lines uh, as you are, I can't say why, but I had a natural curiosity 
and tendency around meditation and mysticism, which it sounds like an odd thing to say for a young child, but I'd seen my father dabbling with meditation and we'd all seen kind of that TV series Kung Fu and there must have been cultural prompts that got me thinking in that way. But I remember very clearly experimenting with meditation when I was probably about nine, nine years old. I would, before I'd go to bed, my parents didn't know. My, my, my father had remarried and I would just, before going to sleep, I would sit with my back against the bed. And it was funny, I would do this kind of, this mudra, this kind of gesture like this with my hands and put that in my lap and I'd try to meditate. And I have no idea really why I did that. We could ham that up a lot and try to say something but <laughs> yeah. really no I think I, maybe it was just cultural prompts and I was curious and there was obviously something had triggered in me and I wanted to try to practice meditation so I think that was always in the background and the fact that I'd really trusted our family GP and he basically uh, he's passed as well but he was a very interesting fellow and he basically said he'd been giving me antibiotics and he was like there's nothing I can actually do for you in medical terms. He's like, why don't you try alternative therapies? Like it came from him and I was like, wow. So at that time, the Gold Coast was like on a par with California. Like it's a different place these days. But back then, Byron Bay is probably a bit more now like how the Gold Coast was when I was a kid where the Gold Coast, for those who know it now, it's very much overdeveloped. It's lost a lot of its kind of soul. But back then there were any and every kind of alternative therapist practicing and thriving. It was crazy. So I literally from like colonics, like a young guy going for colonics, just going, what the hell is this? You know, (laughs) to seeing hardcore naturopathic kind of people who were teaching at the college, going to the college of natural therapies for free, all the students who are graduating for free treatments, getting acupuncture, learning meditation, I don't, there was so much going on and I think that I was just lucky, maybe right place, right time and that also fasting, vegetarianism, veganism, raw food, Hippocrates, all of this kind of stuff was happening and I had all those influences very quickly. So I think it and hanging out with all these naturopathic students, maybe that just got me up to speed a bit quicker because honestly I think I was just stumbling along i don't think i had a true understanding of what was happening in some ways i was guided unconsciously yeah but it it seems also when you're saying stumbling along i sort of hear what you're saying but i'm also seeing that with that curiosity you then mentioned okay so i did five years here and then i did this nine months retreat and i came back and did this course five years now these are things you've got to see through oh yeah they're big commitments do you feel like there's been some kind of part of that journey that it's been almost difficult to avoid? You mentioned those cultural prompts, but as many cultural prompts as you mentioned, there's, there must be so many more that are driving that materialism, that kind of filling that curiosity gap with stuff, whereas it mm. seems as though that hasn't been your mm. journey. Is there still some of that? And has it ever been a thing to, to look at the why of all this for you? Yeah, definitely. I have thought about it deeply within myself. And one thing that comes to mind that is a very 
this is a very important philosophical subject, particularly in Buddhism, but it's there in other traditions as well. I was talking with Akiempo in Bhutan because I did a whole, whole, my studies have just gone on endlessly. I'm now 50 and it's been going since I was in my late teens and I've done many long kind of studies with different teachers in that time. I've spent my entire life basically just learning and trying to help others with what I've learned and saying we're in this together and I'll share what I can but you need to go on your journey and I'll assist you in whatever way I can but I don't want to control your journey. Your journey will unfold and you'll find different teachers. So I was talking with this abbot basically of a monastery in Bhutan where I was currently living and studying Dzogchen with this Bhutanese master, which, again, that went on for almost five, ten years or something. It was really long, and I love Bhutan and would recommend anyone has any curiosity about Bhutan, go there. So anyway, I'm talking with this abbot, and he's like saying, it's interesting with the monks because the monasteries in Bhutan are like going back in time, like how it was in Tibet before the Chinese occupation and all this. So you've got these monasteries of hundreds of monks. It's quite spectacular. And I was talking with him and he's like, yeah, but there's only a small percentage that really get it. The rest of them, it's just cultural and they're studying and their family send them here. And in some ways, the Shedras, the kind of Buddhist universities are like going to university in a way, but it's like a Buddhist university. It's very academic. It's very competitive. It's really intense. Anyway, he said that Half of them or more, most of them, if they went to the West and met a nice girl and oh, yeah, <laughs> the offer done. of materialism, going yeah. back to your point really, materialism, that they would be tempted and they would leave. And I was shocked initially by that because I had, for whatever reason, and this is something that he said, you can't teach this, you either have it or you don't, which may sound very exclusive to say that so i don't want to come across that way but i would say within people there are certain innate qualities and this quality of what we call like renunciation of realizing that the things that you desire will not really lead to the satisfaction that you believe them to hold or possess i remember one of my clients was a professional cricket player back in australia uh, I remember he pulled in one day in his brand new blue Ferrari. You know who you are if you're hearing this. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they are. I hope we've got that kind of reach on this podcast. And he's like, oh, Dorji, you, you think I'm a wanker? Yeah, no. <laughs> Might have to bleep that out. But, no, um, you're good. You're all right. You're all right. <laughs> and we went and we checked out his, like, this convertible blue Ferrari with like cream leather seats. And I was just like, it's a piece of art. It's a beautiful thing. But for a certain amount of kids out there, right, they have the Ferrari, the Lamborghini, the supercar poster on their wall, yeah. this idea that one day I will get there and I will have that thing and that will equal blah, blah, blah. Just like I'm a watch nerd and I love collecting watches and I've been in watches for ages, which seems like a weird thing in a way for someone who claims to have a degree of renunciation but for me <laughs> watches are this mechanical world and it's very nerdy but let's say in a in a in a, the opposite sense in a materialistic sense when somebody has i don't know a rolex or something like that 
and they can flex it, so to speak. You see it a lot with professional sports people and celebrities and people make a bit of money. They're all Originally, they're all flexing Rolex or AP or because, again, I think that we want to enhance our experience of life and we're hoping to do that through material gains. People do it in a more conservative way through marrying, having kids, getting a mortgage, a house. For whatever reason, from a very young age, I was just like, no, that's not for me. No. I remember the guy next door bought a new boat. I was just like, yeah, so what's the deal? You get the wife, the kids, the house, the boat, and then what? And I remember having that thought at a very young age. And I look back on that now and go, that's really quite odd that Mm. I, that materialism just appeared totally empty. It could have been also that my family unit, my core family unit broke up very young. My parents got divorced. I was very young. I was like five or something. My family split. My mum went back to the UK where she comes from and I went with my two brothers and then when I was seven, I was like, no, Australia is where I need to be. I need to be near the beach, near the water and with my dad. So I grew up apart. Maybe I knew that things can go awry in life and perhaps that's been the core premise of my work that I often work with many people either in crisis or through experiencing some kind of crisis, whether it's a relationship crisis, health crisis, psychological, environmental, whatever it is, that they're either going through it or they've come through it and it's awoken something in them Mm. to start to ask questions and push beyond the facade to an inquiring mind that says, what's behind this? It's like that Dave Matthews song, Things You Have Collected, when it all piles up so tall, it's one big nothing at all. It's inquiring what sits behind. It's crazy. Now I'm married into an aristocratic family. Like <laughs> I, I, I sit in a house in Ibiza, which like I'm shocked at the quality of life I have. I had pictured myself in some kind of shack in the middle of nowhere, near a beach, just meditating and doing a few mentoring sessions with people. And my life is very different. My wife comes from one of those really big aristocratic English families, Polo. She grew up in like a Downton Abbey style house. We come from completely different backgrounds. But I still strangely harbor this renunciation and everything fuels it. Speaking with my father-in-law, who's someone who had everything. I remember one time he was saying, like something back in the 70s. Oh, yeah, I just fancied a new car and support a new Rolls Royce. I was like, how many people on this planet can just be like, like almost whimsical, I'll just buy a Rolls Royce. And I asked him, I said, now you've had everything. Does it help you see the emptiness of it all? And I think he does. I think it can lead to that. There are Buddhist practices that are what they call exhaustive. If we have a mindfulness and awareness, even through our abundance, and let's face it, anyone living in a developed country, no matter how rich or poor they feel, are still very abundant compared to a majority of the planet who are living really hand-to-mouth or worse. And I've done a lot of work in Asia in charitable sector, so I'm very aware of that. So it's interesting for me, this renunciation, this opulence to a degree, knowing that there's poverty But I would say that's the driving force really in me and I'd say that's the core 
of where that inquiry came from, renunciation. I was wondering which way to take this because there's two avenues here. And, and I want to pick up on something you just said there, which is about that crisis side, because mm. it's there's so many revelations to that, but it's almost, it's such a privilege sometimes, at least in my life, to hit that red zone. Because when you don't just hit it, it really just leads you and leads you. But when you're left in that space of essentially, yeah, crisis, you're stuck. There's no other way to get past this and something has to give mm. in some way. And it's really powerful. And this mm. conversation, essentially, it's all about human potential. But there's a point where I guess without that crisis, I would still be talking about, when I say that crisis, we're talking about God knows how many during my life. But I'd be talking about human potential would be just running a bit faster, lifting a bit heavier, winning more trophies. But I think I've been in that space as well. My crises began from day dot with just a huge amount of fear. I was in a crisis from the beginning. And I think that crisis has always been something that I've run from until more recently to look back and see what it's actually offering to me and asking of me. Because it does point to a, an alternative engagement relationship with life, I think. But what does that mean to you in terms of mm. that human potential? Because... For so many, it is just life as it is now, but just a bit better. In mm. which case, you are going to look at that car and go, well, if it was just a bit faster, a bit <laughs> shinier, and if that house was a bit bigger, it would be what I've got now and some more. Mm. But that crisis points to a very different perspective of human potential. What, what's that been for you, if you can marry those two, or not marry, but so much compare those two journeys? I think it is really important, the point you're raising and it's the reason I do this work that I do. It's the, what inspires me. When I was younger and living and working in Sydney, I was experimenting a lot, with, particularly with working with younger people and trying to find ways to inspire myself and others and access um, motivating factors that help people to expand to a greater potential. I would essentially say we're all on the Titanic. We just don't know it. The crisis is just around the corner in a myriad of ways. And it's interesting, one of my good buddies who's an Australian actor, writer, and director, he and I have fascinating in-depth conversations because he writes films, but he and I talk a lot about crises and how they are like profound and they can bring profound outcomes but we need often when we're in a crisis of some type we need often some support some guidance to help us transform that adversity into a, a kind of a spiritual and a personal gain yeah you're essentially handed a lot of energy a powerful bundle of energy and you can use that crisis to destroy yourself or to rise metaphorically like the phoenix out of the ashes why these images exist in our society and in history because we've got to go through hard times difficult times i really believe to wake up and to grow and there are lots of things that we can do to be more skillful with that but the first thing is to realize that not only is it inevitable and this is going back to say the Buddha, when he was a prince and he wanted to leave and his father said, why leave the palace? Everything, I can give you everything here. And he said, I will stay if you can protect me from 
sickness, aging, and death. <laughs> and the father was like, I can't protect you from no one can. And they're the great adversities. You know, we get sick. Also, what's interesting, a lot of people who haven't experienced a great deal of success, because strangely, for some reason, I've attracted in my work a lot of very high achievers and very successful people. And I, I think it's quite fascinating because success can be a massive crisis, actually. I've seen people who have started a business and then the business just explodes and it throws them in so much stress and crises. And most people would laugh at that and say, oh, how can success be a problem? But it can be in so many different ways. And also, I've worked with some people who've had a fall from grace, a dear friend of mine who was in the 80s, like a massive rock star. And now he's kind of like a nobody. And we did a lot of work in my earlier days in Sydney, processing that fall from grace, like health, as I experienced, and many people have experienced at the end of a career or the exit, say somebody wants to build that business, and their whole thing is exit strategy, and they sell their business for a big ton of money. I've seen people fall into depression straight after Absolutely, that. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing how much hidden adversity there is in our world. And I think that's what deeply attracted me to Buddhism. Now, I'm not essentially a religious person, but I'm very philosophical and I love the philosophy of the Buddha Dharma, the Buddhist teachings on suffering. Because essentially that's what the Buddha was in some ways about, was saying, look, the human condition is that we suffer. How you work with that is really the spiritual path. You can approach it from a purely personal development space you can approach it from a kind of spiritual development there's so many different ways that you can come at this adversity and then we look at extraordinary people people like sir edmund hillary summiting everest or mallory who potentially did before him but didn't survive or these people who surf these massive waves or sports people who achieve greatness tennis players, footballers, you name it. Like these are people that we look up to and admire, but they've had to go through so many physical and mental thresholds, all these different thresholds they've had to push through and push through to become that extraordinary performer as such. Yeah, I think we need to not only appreciate that it exists, but embrace it. So my motto, particularly with young men, when I was doing a lot of work with young guys who struggling with addiction or depression, whatever, it's like move towards the pain. If there is a painful place and you feel that you're retreating from it or running from it, the running from it is what drives addiction. The running from it is the problem. If you turn and face it with support and constructively work through it, it will empower you. It will be the making of you. It's huge though because I think one of the things that I've never I found more difficult to relate to in other people is a lack of energy because from mm. day one, it's always been immense passion and a kind of need to realize something, to achieve something. Mm. Like you mentioned about the high achieving, that's all I've ever known on one side is that passion that, and people have said about dedication or oh, how have you been able to do this? I've had no choice. It's not been difficult because I've had no choice. There's no mm. way that the difficult thing has been, would have been me trying to resist that passion and direction. But then there's been this ridiculous fear. I've started to realize that, that they're very much the same energy in a way. When I, you listen to it, they've both got enormous amounts 
to offer. And the message has sometimes been the same, but I feel that it's the not having the energy, which I found that more difficult to relate to. Because when I'm in spaces where there just isn't much energy around, I can feel myself hugely turned off. Mm. When you're in a conversation with someone, you're just chewing the fat, really. You're just talking about this and that. This isn't for me. Conversations Mm. where there's a bit of a front talking to another front Mm. or that energy about the real the depth of conversation about stuff that matters when there's that involved. For me, that's always, for some reason, been the challenging space. And the other thing you mentioned about the skill of it is really powerful, but you also mentioned about having support to face those kind of big energies. Because I guess if you knew, if you were able to handle it brilliantly, you'd already be handling it. Then it seems to be a collaborative necessity to this journey that brings you closer to someone or something has that been your experience in terms of when you've been looking for this master or this guidance in your life yeah i think it was set up pretty young for me because my father's an engineer and instinctively like i he sent me to a good school and my art teacher wanted me to go to art school and do photography and i always had a natural tendency towards the artistic and my father was like no I've got your apprenticeship as an electrician (laughs) and I'm like how inspiring but what it taught me was that there are people who can teach you things and that if you're inspired and hardworking, you can learn most things and so that's why I was then like okay there are these amazing teachers out there who are not just teaching you how to become an electrician or a tradesperson, which I have a lot of respect for tradespeople because I did a trade and I never really worked in it, but I realized that there is an incredible learning that goes on there and this relationship between master and student uh, in a way, yeah. And that's what then the martial arts followed. I was always curious about martial arts, but starting my apprenticeship, Back, I started my apprenticeship in 1990 and building sites in Australia were very dangerous and aggressive places back then. There wasn't the health and safety now, but they were wild. It was cowboys, <laughs> like people drinking alcohol on site and big punch-ups and big, hairy, <laughs> scary men. And I was this boy from private school, all like skinny and scared. And I was like, I've got to learn how to fight because I'm going to get eaten alive here. And as I was learning as a, an electrician apprentice, I started to learn how to defend myself, which felt like a, a necessity back then, not so much now. And then through that relationship with the martial arts instructor, it was like, oh, there's this layer and etiquette to learning in this. And so I was like, whatever obstacle arises in my life or whatever inspiration I feel, I know that there's a mentor out there who can help me because that's the beauty of learning and what we can leverage off. If I had to figure everything out for myself, I'd still probably be like trying to make an ax out of a stone or something. Like I'd be back in the stone age. It's only through leveraging off other people's learning. And in this field that we're talking about, there are so many great teachers and so many great educators. And there's also a lot of filler because now it's become an industry There's also lots of people that are not really in the know and they haven't done those apprenticeships and internships or whatever. They're just trying to make a buck, which I kind of understand as well. So we have to be discerning. I'm not saying go and learn from anyone anything, but 
if you are discerning, you can learn. And you, then whatever it is, let's say you have shared just now about an abundance of energy, right? That abundance of energy can be utilized to avoid, right? Or it can be utilized to move toward the adversities. And so everyone has their own natural gifts and those gifts can be their strength and their weakness. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you can probably relate to that. I think it's knowing oneself is very important. And to be ignorant of yourself, your personality, I think it's, it makes this process very difficult. So with the work, the mentoring work I do, I sometimes have to put my therapist cap on for a minute and kind of look at the dynamic and guide people towards like to see this unconscious dynamic that this unconscious context that was set up in their childhood that is still playing out, right? And then guide them to move towards the discomfort within that. Do you think there's a movement towards that kind of self-awareness in our culture at the moment? Because you could argue, yes, you could argue the, the other way with people maybe being driven more online to the more ego identity image-based reputation that's what's important or is there this shift you're feeling in these days and ages and the times of COVID and what have you is there a movement towards people becoming more sensitive and aware of themselves I think everything's become more exaggerated and I think that materialism and ego and hey look at me (laughs) is become more exaggerated and I think that learning and deep inquiry and development has become more enhanced but also unfortunately a lot of misinformation more than ever I feel has been enhanced and one thing that I really am grateful for in my Buddhist studies was we do very deep study on logic and debate and learning to to have a rational debate around any subject debate's a very big thing within Buddhism because Buddhism people may or may not know it became so big in India at that time because the style was that if a spiritual teacher had a philosophy, he would go and debate openly with another spiritual teacher. Oh, wow. And if the other spiritual teacher, through the logical debate, could see that they were erroneous or an error in their thinking, they would submit to the other teacher. And not only would they become a student of that other teacher, all of their students would convert. Oh, my gosh. I didn't realize that. So the Buddha traveled all over India debating with spiritual masters. And because he was a Sanskrit scholar, because being a a prince, he'd learned Sanskrit. He had learned philosophy at a high level, but also he was a practitioner. He was a renunciant. He lived with the ascetics in the forest. He was a deep practitioner of meditation. So he had deeply thought through these things and had – found a way to articulate ultimate truths very clearly. And so he gained a huge following in his lifetime through debate and logic. And so I feel that what modern humans have lost, and it's essential for one's own protection, but also to be able to discern a good teacher from a teacher who means well but doesn't know what they're on about from receiving information from any source, whether it's rational and logical and valid or if it's just made up and nonsense that people are trying to 
I don't know, sell you something or tell you something, sway your view. Yeah. So interesting because one of the things that is really powerful to me is even just some of the concepts that we've explored them on previous podcasts around our understanding of who we are Mm. and marrying that with science and what Mm. science is coming up with and understanding those limits of where we try to impart a sense of finite in what's infinite and Mm. finding that out to in versus the into out almost contradictions and one of the things i found really tricky i'm going to slip this into the next question because almost like the message and then the individual the human and the human's message sometimes you can look at human and obviously the human lives on this physical plane the messages of this live forever but this, the physical plane is telling you something different or there's this kind of almost flawed nature of the physical limited nature of the physical but the message and that other this is maybe where we're going with this potential human potential is into that sort of beyond the physical plane where different laws exist where time and space are, become a bit more obsolete but i find that amazing when i grew up it was all physical i had mm. the picture on my wall was not a lamborghini or whatever it was arnold schwarzenegger <laughs> that was an incredible image i can imagine which actual photo that oh, was. Yeah, he was mind-blowing we, so it was always going to be like your predator your commando we're talking the early days here so your raw deal red heat yeah everyone would probably be aware of these kind of films just such an iconic image that's how i grew up that's where human potential was bigger mm. stronger mm. Saving the world, save it. It played on all my archetypes. The martyr, save yourself, go out there, whatever it is. And as that sort of transformed into this desire to to be, because of that sensitivity that was brought about by the fear to go beyond the physical, I realized that there was something about me that wanted the softer, the gentler. That kind of conflict and everything wasn't me. But then I started to picture my seeking was the yogi mm. doing something paranormal doing mm. something like levitating mm. or mm. disappearing or eating air or all these stories that mm. you've heard, it almost, it was like, I was like, I want to go there, but I still want it to be how I want it to be. Mm. And so when you were mentioning about going around and seeing all these yogis and all these amazing teachers, there's still that little part of me that says, like Jesus's miracles, it's there to sort of almost shock you to be like, it's possible. But then people are like, yeah, but I don't want the growth or the, spiritual potential i just want to be able to do miracles because it looks like a cool thing to do that would be my new poster it's like a new poster would be that but i'm fascinated because on the one hand people they don't marry up to what you think human potential looks like but the internal experience like we talk about playing in the zone on a sporting field and actually externally when you look at it someone in the zone it doesn't look that different they're not jumping over Mm. buildings they're not you know like sprinting at the speed of light but the internal experience, and I've always been after the what does it look like side of it. Mm. And I think that's where my big contradiction has been in me almost. The big hypocrisy has been, I want to feel, I want to experience this life, but there's an old part of me that still thinks it's got some kind of physical kind of, oh, I want it on the physical plane. What did you mm. see in these masters in your search for teachers? What's happening over there? How much of that is there? Or is it just old wives' tales? And what's been if you like your experiential shift 
in that way? Mm. Have you moved from a kind of physical potential or sorry, potential means that we were talking earlier about the material, but in terms of even just powers versus actual experience of life? There's a lot in what you've just said and I'm digesting it. I would say a few things that come to mind. Like one, I think something that's very interesting that you perhaps pointed a little bit to at the beginning of that last piece there, that sometimes extraordinary comes through the ordinary, right? I think of someone like Rothko. I, I, I dig art. And if you look at Rothko's paintings, they just look like a few lines on a big canvas, right? And people, some people go, that's just crap or whatever. (laughs) Um, Actually, a funny little side story. A a friend of mine, her mother, was they were a New York family, brought home a Rothko when Rothko was still living. And her husband said, what's that crap? Take it back. And she took it back. (laughs) Profound, right? This is probably like worth $400 million now or something, that painting. There's, I think it's in Texas or whatever, there's the Rothko chapel where you sit in front of these pieces of art that they the first time I saw Rothko was not long after I'd come out of my monastic study and came back to Sydney and I an image came up on the internet I was searching for something and I was just like it was a Rothko painting and it just floored me I was just like what is that and then I looked into it more but we know about Rothko he in some ways struggled a lot and was in a lot of pain and I think he even took his own life that sometimes truly inspirational people on the material can still be flawed and limited. And the same can be with teachers. And I always try, anyone who I work with or mentor or whatever, I always try to be as open as I can about my flaws to say, look, don't think that I'm something more than you. I've just I've been at this a little bit longer and I've had some rarefied experiences that have informed me which then leads on to the second part of what you're talking about which is in the beginning it was difficult to discern between a valid teacher and a fake or a phony and India has many of both yeah and they come in all different shapes and sizes but what's quite incredible is that over time, you, you develop this ability to discern. It's in a way <laughs> like, like I am a collector of timepieces and you gain, especially in vintage timepieces, you have to gain a certain degree of discern, discernment. So there are lots of fakes and lots of funny business that goes on. And I used to be around a lot of antique Buddhist statues at one point and I learned a lot about the antique statue market out of Nepal, and again, a lot of discernment and everything can be faked. So in spiritual circles, there's such a thing. So we need a certain degree of discernment. But as that discernment grew, and I think anyone can develop that, I managed to find myself in relationships with very special teachers who had very special hidden qualities. And I too, in a funny way like you, hungered to see Mm. all of these mystical incredible things because i believed it was possible but i had nothing really to base that on apart from yeah, movies absolutely and stories like you read autobiography of a yogi and stuff like that and you hear about these things 
But then slowly, as I sincerely became a seeker and submitted my ego to different teachers and humbled myself, and we have this saying, the mountain, the water doesn't gather in the, on the top of the mountain, it gathers in the valley. So you've got to be humble when you go to a teacher because otherwise you won't gain anything from the relationship. So you humble yourself, you get given a bit of the run around for a while, they you know, test you out. And <laughs> remember my teacher in central Bhutan, I'd been going for some years with a dear friend of mine and he said one, one time, he goes, you've been coming now for two or three years regularly. I haven't really taught you much and <laughs> we can begin now. And it was almost like he said, yeah, you've, you've gone through the preliminary trial period and you've proven your commitment and now we are going to go for the juice. Yeah, so there are different teachers that I've really made a strong commitment to and then slowly you get led into a different world and there is a different world. This there is, really is. Even you saying that is just, you're just teasing me. You're teasing me. <laughs> you're dangling the carrot and saying because, you know, I, I have I have things in my experience that that have wowed me and have left me mm. dumbfounded. I can't resolve them. They don't fit with what I, what my old me thinks is right and mm. possible and what have you. But then someone always comes along who's been with a teacher in India and says, oh, this happened. And you just go, I need to see it. Because otherwise I don't like being in that space. But it, like that otherworldly thing, it, it, the other thing I find is quite interesting. It's a bit like feeling like there's some sort of hierarchy there, which obviously there isn't. But some people have been to these places and, and then – they come back and live and I'm sort of like, geez, it must be tough having seen that and then coming back here. But of course it's not. They're saying actually it opens your eyes to realising that that's available here and everyone and everything. Mm. But it is still yeah. there in me because I think it's always been part of my life to to seek that kind of like mastery on the physical plane at some level. And a lot of my revelations come from trying to do that, whether I'm playing basketball or whatever I'll go to that space because it's like my meditative space where I fall into that but I always come away understanding it's like we said before it's not about the thing it's about the relationship and leaving you in that space but you mentioned about the phonies this otherworldly side is it something that when you're in it you're kind of almost thinking what the hell or is it an experience of life that just makes sense at that time to answer that, there's one friend of mine. Well, there were two brothers, actually. I used to call them the Yogi Brothers. <laughs> when I was growing up on the Gold Coast, when I first got into this stuff, they had a spiritual, big section of spiritual books in their, their little bookstore in this market. And I'd go and see them. And the first time I wandered in there, and I was already into Qigong and had gone through that transformation. My health was recovering. And I was like, oh, do you have any spiritual books? And they look at each other, oh, spiritual books. And so they started to talk to me and guide me and to, to different books. And I started reading all sorts of stuff from Way of the Peaceful Warrior, Dan Millman. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. It was all just in books at that time. And so I would just every week go buy my veggies in this market and pick up another couple of books. And they, then as I became closer and closer, they were actually quite mystical guys and they had studied with the disciple of the bliss-permeated mother, Anoy Mandama, who's mentioned in Autobiography of a Yogi. So their guru, Swami Ashishananda in Rishikesh, who long has passed, 
they studied under him and they saw many mystical things. So they started talking to me and then they said, there's two doors. And I'm like, what are you on about? They always talked in riddles and stuff. They're like, you can go in and out through the first door as much as you want. But once you go through the second door, you can never forget what you've seen. (laughs) And then that became this kind of curious path was like, what is that second door? What does that look like? And that's what I realized that making these committed relationships with these teachers and that they'll let you in that little bit more. And I have, whether people would believe it or not, I've seen many miracles and many things are very difficult to explain. The closest thing that can explain them is probably like that really fringe quantum physics stuff. I've seen a lot of really incredible things and it helped me to realize as they do say what we're talking about are cities attainments that come from practice that they are just a side effect of the developmental process as opposed to the goal yeah because and i see teachers who have these cities and they can do extraordinary things and even when they do an extraordinary thing there's always going to be a certain amount of people who just doubt it, that sleight of hand or that's a trick or whatever. So what they tend to do is do those things more in secrecy or very little or yeah. almost not at all. Or in some traditions, they take a vow never to display these things, even oh, wow. if they have them. So one teacher I studied with, he definitely had these cities and he had a vow never to display them. And so I would just, I was around him a lot intimately like in his environment in his bedroom around like helping out and i just started to notice that this phenomenal level of coincidence (laughs) occurring (laughs) crazy coincidence occurring that he was almost like you're doing in such a secret way that he was teasing me because I it was like I knew these things were going on but he did it in such a covert way it was very difficult to point out and then I've seen other teachers like in India in Hinduism who are very overt with it even my Qigong master who's a regular kind of you look at him just looks like a regular Chinese guy businessman he could do incredible things I was doing Qigong with him I was about probably 20 20 years old or something he starts going oh and then afterwards, I'm like, what's going on? He goes, oh, when you do your Qigong practice, I feel you. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, I enter your body and I feel you. And he was telling me all the things that are going on inside my body and stuff. And he would sometimes we could get him to do some stuff like push you without touching you. All that's like you see it on YouTube, like <laughs> yeah. these kind of like things. But he was still just a regular guy. He wasn't, he was very skilled in Qigong and a very skilled practitioner, but I wouldn't say that he had high spiritual attainments, interestingly. He still very much was mostly focused on materialism, but he had this profound gift of medicine, and that's what I learned from him and became a very dear friend and teacher. So it's interesting that, right? I actually get in the very clear feeling, like you said, even for these guys, it's like they, you or whoever it is, this happens. But then afterwards, it's still going to be, so what? Mm. It's still, like you said, it's not the thing. And it's so clear that it doesn't matter what you're after, whether it goes from winning trophies or just having money or having this car or having this or having that, or whether it goes to being able to materialize things out of nothing 
or create visions for people or do mm. this amazing thing. It's still, what's the end game? What does that mm. give you by doing that? Or the, and I guess to bring that back, what's your daily kind of commitment to this journey? For me personally, it's impossible for me. Like you said, I can't not see it through these eyes now. I can't go back to the whole, mm. I'll just forget this and live on this idea that this will bring me peace and I'll stress and suffer mm. because I'm too aware of stress and suffering for it to look at it like with that curiosity and think, what am I doing, et cetera. Yeah. But so every moment has become part of that practice, but what specifically in your day or week or whatever it is, do you find that's part of that dedicated thing? What do you think is a worthwhile thing for people? And if you like, what is worth it? What is the so what experience of life? What is the bit that if you say, actually, if I live like this is worth me being alive for this, yeah, what is that feeling? Yeah, it's interesting. I had a chat with a guy in Australia yesterday who needed a little bit of that kind of encouragement. And I think it is really important. We have to keep asking ourselves that all the time. Otherwise, we can become a bit lost and complacent and do things purely mechanically because there's some belief driving it or some conditioning driving it. So for me, what is most important primarily is balance, self-regulation. How regulated is my nervous system? How regulated are my, is my emotional state? And how focused and clear is my mind in this present moment? Even if I'm mowing the lawn, I'm on the right on mower, my son's on my lap, where am I at? It's uncomfortable. He, you know, he's fallen asleep. He's all the stuff, <laughs> kids, the mundane nature of mowing a lawn. But it becomes a practice. I'm in service to my family. I'm doing art. I'm creating beauty in our environment around the house. I'm relaxed in my body. My nervous system's relaxed. Emotionally, I'm open, I'm connected with my son, I'm feeling love. I'm present. We live on a farm in West Sussex. I'm present to the elements. There's a cold wind coming from the north. This is yesterday before I got on a plane and flew to Ibiza. Then it's like, there I am, Gatwick Airport, <laughs> yeah. noticing. Here I am on the plane, hitting turbulence. What's going on? Contemplating. They had a funny moment at the beginning of the flight which I thought was quite extraordinary after all airport security dramas. Someone had left their backpack literally in the boarding gate and so the hostess walked onto the plane going, whose bag does this belong to? And nobody was owning it and she's walking up and down with this bag and you're just like, normally in some airports like in the US, an abandoned bag, it's called a bomb squad. Yeah, <laughs> You don't, don't bring it on the plane. <laughs> And I was just like, yeah, death could meet us in any moment. <laughs> yeah. And can I relax into that? Know that that's a truth. It's unlikely, but it could happen. So there's that layer of practice. Which, which is that awareness, because when you speak about it that way, it almost, if you look at it as analysis, like it's got an answer, it almost feels like work, constant work. Mm. But actually as awareness in just being aware of where you are, it's got that self-regulatory Power yeah, it's a meditation. Yeah. Like we train in meditation with the eyes closed. We train with the eyes open. I used to do a 5 a.m. meditation group in Bondi for many years. 
near the beginning, everyone meditates with their eyes closed because their mind is too active and they get distracted and they've got to learn how to relax and sit still and be relaxed. Then later, it's now you're too relaxed and you're drifting off. Yeah. Now you practice with your eyes open and practicing with the eyes open is much harder. And that that's why for me, my my lifelong pursuit of meditation, I couldn't even calculate how many hour to hour there's that like Malcolm Gladwell outliers, the 10,000 hour rule, right? Or if you do 10,000 hours of something, you go through a threshold and be in a more extraordinary state. It's time spent. A lot of athletes like that, they yeah. accumulate these 10,000 hour very early in their career. And that's what makes them just so much better than everyone else, right? You can never catch up to them. It took years and years of really deliberate, long practice going through lots of discomfort and thresholds and learning how to regulate my nervous system in lots of different situations and then slowly trying to draw that into an integrated state in my life now i still get angry i still react like they say you want to know the zen master speak to his wife my wife can tell you all the the dirt on me i'm no perfect person and i don't even aspire to be there's so much pressure we can put on ourselves trying to be so perfect I'm flawed, but at the same time, I try in that mind state to be as impeccable as I can be, that impeccable state of mind. And I think I took that a little bit from the Dan Millman like way of the mm-hmm. peaceful warrior, just try to be impeccable in what you do, to bring that level of focus best you can while staying relaxed. And it's almost like an oxymoron. Can you be razor sharp and deeply relaxed at the same time? Because sure, people can drink 10 cups of coffee and be razor sharp and play speed chess, (laughs) but they're not relaxed. And people can be relaxed and they're falling asleep, whatever. That's so interesting because you're perfectly describing there what people in my field would have felt as a mystical thing. There's no doubt about Mm. it of yeah. being in the zone when suddenly time yeah. time is a bit like, I don't know what's happening here. I don't know how much yeah. I'm controlling because I seem to know a ton of stuff that I yeah. shouldn't be knowing. It's a yeah. mystical sort of experience, which is pawned off as a bit of a, oh, the in the zone thing now. But it's yeah. a beautiful thing. But it, for me, it comes from an alignment, as you're talking about, an absolute alignment and that balance that you think, all right, when I get balance, it'll just be peace and it'll be easy. Yes, it is. But also that alignment, it's almost like getting all the lights lit up in the same row almost illuminates a space you've not been in before. It feels to me that sometimes health and well-being and feels a bit like and all potential feels like I'll get back to where I've been before. Mm. But actually, it's always into a space of the unknown. Being in the zone for me is a classic example where you're just there you're there and then suddenly you're like, oh my gosh, Mm. now I'm not here. Something's happened Mm. and then you're the you again. And it almost feels like that balance is effort and effortlessness as one. Yeah. I think that flow state comes partly through a huge amount of rigor, like that 10,000 hour, like huge discipline, huge effort, huge rigor, And then within that, a degree of mastery that occurs to a point where you can be relaxed in because the rigor is carrying you and then there's a relaxation 
and that creates some kind of space for something else to show up. So they talk a lot about being in a flow state, like in extreme situations. What I'm really a big fan of is in ordinary situations. Yeah, 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 100%. Again, Millman, it's like there are no ordinary moments, only ordinary state of mind. Can I be in that flow state? My son's on my lap falling asleep. I'm on the ride on mower trying to get the lawn done before I get on a plane to come here to do stuff. Can I find that flow state mm. in my sessions with my, my, my clients or the people I mentor or whatever? Can I be in that state? So aware. Like it's really weird because in some ways I have a, like a terrible memory. I'm like ADHD, dyslexic. I was, my memory was never super great. But when I'm in that state, especially working, I can remember everything, almost everything that that person's ever said to me. I have a, their whole process, like a jigsaw puzzle, and it's just all there yeah. in the moment. So we can access a lot in the moment if we can access that state. And it doesn't have to be just on the sporting field. Of or, course, yeah. And that, I think that's, for me, is a, a really interesting point because often people associate it primarily with high performance. But what if it's possible in ordinary performance? I remember one time talking to a, I was mentoring this guy who owned a big trucking company in Australia. And he's like, I'd like you to teach all my truck drivers meditation. Because I was saying how I'd get in the car and I was living in Byron. I was working a lot in Sydney. And it's, I don't know, nine, 10 hour drive. I'm like, yeah, I get in the car for, I stop halfway, go to the loo, fill up with fuel and keep going. And I'm there. And then I start work and you can just drive like that without stopping, without drought. I'm like, I don't even listen to the radio. I just drive. <laughs> and I say, I find it really relaxing, but it came from all those years sitting in the monastery, sitting still in meditation, not falling asleep, not getting agitated, just staying in that regulated state of equilibrium of balance. And then just applying that to ordinary moments like, driving a car on the motorway yeah it's easy i think this is just for me the missing part of health and well-being it's the absolute peace part but it's also the potential part it's the surprise you know mm. but it's also the absolute peace part because it almost feels to me that health and well-being or whatever is and all these kind of things have become an effort to be different whilst being the same yeah. i'll be who i still am and i'll keep all those old habits and everything but I'll just do different stuff and therefore everything will change. And what the frustration is, nothing's changing because that cog is still turning fast, driving everything on the inside. And I, it feels to me that even in sport, I've been speaking to people in sport, high-level sport recently, who are starting to say, we've got four or five physios for the team, but we're starting to think now we need probably 10 of these mm. spiritual, mentor, psychological mm. guides in place so players can have that opportunity because the physical side we're getting better at, but even so there's so much more to preparation, you know, like the thought about me saying, I'm going to prepare for my game. What do you do? I'm just going to sit quietly for an hour before the game. I'd be like, you're wasting your time. Yeah. What you need to be doing is out there practicing exactly what you're going to do, getting stressed about it, looking for perfection, mm -hmm. trying to get permission to feel good about yourself instead of finding your own way, as you said, to find that balance, to find that space where, you bring all of you to that moment. 
it's a state of being really but there are no shortcuts in the sense that you have to do the rigor and i think that's younger generations don't quite realize that that when we look at great sporting personalities the true greats that have lived the amount of rigor that they've employed the amount of effort and conditioning from such a young age such a young age that's what then creates the platform for them to relax and become these extraordinary sporting when you talk like nadal or whoever mm. like these people you're just like far out they're just mind-blowing and they're so consistent in their greatness like we can all have moments of greatness and hopefully those moments of greatness even when we don't haven't done the rigor the training just those we call it like a fluke right oh i fluked it or whatever that was a moment of greatness it's just inconsistent and it makes me think one of my mates went to see this zen master very famous zen master because he had this incredible moment realization and the zen master in such a japanese way he just goes requalify now and just kept yelling now at him and the guy was just freaking out but he was basically saying to him so you had an amazing moment in meditation so what where is it now yeah yeah it's and i think it's really just yeah important to know there's the mundane conditioning the rigor which is needed and valuable within itself it creates all this structure and all of this conditioning muscle memory and so forth and then when we're working on the relaxation, the deeper the state of relaxation, the more open we become, remembering that oxymoron to be razor sharp and deeply relaxed at the same time. For me, that's what I learned in Qigong. That was Qigong was about being in a highly energized state but so relaxed that you don't even feel you need to do anything or go anywhere. And in our culture, we're either one or the other. We don't know how to hold those two polarities at the same time. Yeah. And then applying that to whatever. Yeah, that's so, so powerful. And it's in me, it's the big question of this because it's always painted because I don't think it's been explored fully that it's not possible. Mm -hmm. You mentioned about where's that moment now? It's almost like, oh, this is me. This is what I'm into. So I used to talk about it when I was playing rugby is that you're wearing the rugby shirt. Mm -hmm. That's what I am. I'm a rugby player. So when I step into the stadium, everything aligns. But when I walk out of the stadium, I'm wearing a rugby shirt in the street. I'm out of place. I can't align. And therefore I have suffering and feeling like I don't belong or that something's not right. And it's normally I'm suffering because I'm overanalyzing. I'm still wearing my rugby shirt. So I'm still overanalyzing what's just been. I'm starting to get very fearful of what's coming because it's all about this rugby shirt and I have no concept of engaging in the moment in between my interactions with people are becoming less and less I collective or inclusive or whatever it is and then this idea becomes yes but the more I do it the more that's who I am because that's where I feel it and so you then really strap that rugby shirt on and then your career finishes Mm. and all you've got is this understanding that this is who I am and now I can never ever play again and now I'm lost and the depression kicks in. But that power of relaxation and patience to, because it used to be the more I'm thinking, because I'm wearing the rugby shirt, the more I'm thinking about the last game and the more I'm worrying about the next game, this is good prep. Yeah. But that rigor you're talking about for me, finding out what that really is, because a lot of that for me was wasteful energy and wasteful living. 
just not really experiencing anything that was around me, swapping it out for this momentary stuff on the field. But that reasoning has come around in people to be like, actually, you've got to live like that because that stress and suffering is what brings about the joy instead of actually understanding it from, you know, can you not, the work, can it be engaging the whole time? Is that not the point to be fully engaged the whole time, to be living this moment fully in service and in practice of ensuring you're going to live the next one fully? So before the game in the change room, be like, I need to really live this changing room moment so that it gets me right in the space to enjoy the pitch moment and live that moment fully. Because I've never been so absent as I was in the change room before a game or probably mm. afterwards. It's mm. almost like I can't feel my feet. I have no concept of, I feel like I'm, mm. my energy's in my head. I'm staring around. I'm intense. I can't feel a thing. And if you ask me, what do you want? I'd say, I want to be able to feel and flow and be spontaneous and responsive. I need to be sharp, razor sharp, razor urgent in survival mode. And I think this is a huge point of this entire podcast, I think, is that message of, okay, it's many moments, that's as good as you're going to get. And it mostly depends upon what you're good at. And you build yourself up for those by stressing away the rest of the time. So you might be able to enjoy those ones, whether that's the new car, the retirement, or whether it's me on the field or on stage doing what I love doing. How does that grab you? Yeah, and I, I would caveat that to say that thinking, those being extraordinary in those moments, what it also does with a lot of people who don't have natural ability and they look at the extraordinary people in those extraordinary moments and they start to feel, I'm not good enough. And there's a lot of that with young people, not good enough, young guys, self-esteem, all this sort of thing. And when we realize that every moment, there are no ordinary moments, just ordinary states of mind, then a whole world opens and going like my family crest in my family is while I breathe, I hope, right? And my wife's family is do it with thy might. But I have my own motto, which is never underestimate the power of being underestimated. Be a stealth meditator. Be a stealth flow state person. You're doing it all the time. People don't even know. They don't need to know. You don't need to say, hey, look at me. I'm special. I'm extraordinary. Here's a, here's that, a photo of me living in the now. It's- look, that was me. I was kicking the goal yeah. or scoring the try, whatever. It's like, and then it, you put on the wall and go, that was a moment. And all you can ever do is then move further and further away from that moment and become less than. Where really it's like every, every year I get older, every day I think of it like a, it's a cliche, but it's like a good bottle of wine. It's just slowly improving over time if you take care of it. And for me, this leads to the second part of my practice, which I will only touch on briefly, but is context, that we hold conscious and subconscious contexts. And these really steer, they're like the rudder that steers us, the boat of our life, our journey across this great ocean. And a lot of people are rudderless and their unconscious conditioning has created a subconscious context that's steering their life towards the rocks or towards a direction they don't want to go. And I would say what I'm constantly doing is checking what subconscious context am I unaware of that is guiding me and steering me? And have I got my conscious context in order, the framework 
where I'm going, what, you know, what's, and that's part of what we've been exploring today a little bit around, around this is creating a conscious context for the meaning or the value of one's life. Was the value of your life just when you're in the stadium on the field? Then you are only living, you put those moments together, you're only living like not even a year of your life. The rest Absolutely. of your life is just like a dud. Yeah, yeah that's right. But that's the point is that story, no matter how deep down it is, tells us that some people are important and others aren't. Yeah. Yeah. And some things are good and some things are pretty much just like you said, mundane, who cares? Mm. And that, and you have this story that basically sw- closes your eyes for you from the majority of your life mm. and opens them only. And when they open, you think this is an important event, but we can open our eyes to every moment yeah. if we can find that, if we can almost create a different story or even just find out the real story that is everyone is incredible you mentioned so powerfully about people being able to teach you anything i look back at my relationships and coaches i've had chats with i'm staring through the window now my neighbor who lives across the street he's a fabulous guy he's 80 i think 82 years old now you mentioned about saying is he a spiritual teacher he wouldn't classify himself as one he wouldn't classify himself as anything like that but i stand there and talk and i think oh my gosh an incredible person and yet it's nothing to do with what he's done. And yet you put me back 20 years. I'm walking around being like, who's this guy? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not listening to, yeah, I've got stuff to do. I'm busy. I got, I'm a special guy. I got mm. stuff mm. to get on with. That's been so powerful. I'm conscious of your time, mate, but it's, that's such a big thing. In terms of the future then, just give us that bef- before you go. What's, what's, what's exciting you? Where's all this leading if it's not leading to a destination? One thing I would like to say a short vignette to support what you just said. Yeah, please do. Fire in. Something that for anyone listening to lay down the gauntlet, a challenge. <laughs> nice. That if you are like you and I curious about this mystical world and stuff, that just as there are no ordinary moments, there are many extraordinary people in plain view all around us that we can't see. And I'll tell you one great story that always reminds me of this, that I think I flew to Melbourne to give a keynote to a bank or something. I was doing lots of keynote speaking at one point in Australia. And I flew back into Sydney and I got in a taxi and there's a Chinese taxi driver, which is pretty normal in Sydney. I'm sitting in the taxi and he's just driving me from the airport to Bondi, which is 20 minutes or so at night. We're sitting in the car. I'm just sitting quietly. And he keeps looking in the rear view. He just keeps catching my eye occasionally and he's like out of nowhere we haven't spoken this is the first thing he says to me he goes i think you know qigong (laughs) and i look at him and i go qigong (laughs) mate you know qigong he was a freaking qigong master driving a taxi and there is this whole lineage of great qigong masters in this world They only ever take one student and they remain completely hidden their entire lives. They never declare themselves but to one student. My Qigong master used to tell me these stories. This guy was dead set, a full-on Qigong master driving a taxi. He was like Socrates in in Way of the Peaceful Warrior, working in the gas station. And they are everywhere, these extraordinary beings. You don't have to go to India. This is what I realized. There are so many covert, profound beings 
whether they realize it or not, whether they have trained in spiritual discipline or not, or just like your neighbor who has just profound innate wisdom through having lived 82 years and experienced whatever he's experienced. And we can find these people. So I guess for me then leading on to from that story, (laughs) I have no idea where my life will go. I look at my life now and I think, wow, really? And there's been lots of ups and downs. And what I find is that I've got a context, which is like a framework, and then things just fill in that framework. I want to be, I have been like the main focus in the last five years has been my two little kids. I've got a daughter just about turned five and a son turning three. My wife, the farm, I've learned about growing vegetables. I've learned how to do ceramics, all these things that this creative journey that opportunities just present themselves and I respond. I think I'll always be doing this work. I'm passionate about it and I love to help and encourage and mentor people and I'll always practice and I'll live as long as I live and I think it will just somehow continue. Beautiful. I love the even that balance you're saying about having that framework but allowing it to fill in. Mm. Instead of having the framework and filling it in yourself, you're like, no, that's the, the losing the balance or not having a framework and allowing it to fill in doesn't work. But having that enough of a structure, but then just having that real openness. There's so much in this. I'm, I normally do a little episode just before it, just to explain some stuff that's come up about in this chat that's inspired me. And I'm like, geez, what the hell am I going to write about in this one? There's so much there, but I get it. It's so cool. So yeah, Chris, thank you so much, mate. It's been a pleasure. You've given up your time just to to navigate us and lead us through some awesome stuff. I really appreciate that. Thank you. So that's it for another episode of I Am. It's brilliant to be sharing this unfolding experience with you all. If you'd like to get in touch with either me or the guest, then all the information you need is in the show notes. I welcome all and any feedback. I really want all of you to have a hand in guiding the feel of this show and the path of the conversation as well. So just keep them coming in. And until next time, I'm Johnny Wilkinson, and this has been I Am. This show is brought to you by Max Creative. The executive producer is Megan Hill-Smith. Assistant producer is Alex Macy. That's all for this week's episode of I Am. Before you go, a big thank you to Vivo Life, our podcast partner, who deliver affordable, natural and UK-made supplements straight to your door. Vivo Life perfectly embodies the principles we're discussing here at I Am, and we're excited for you to experience their products firsthand. As a special offer for our listeners, they're currently offering their biggest sale ever. Use the code IAMPODCAST, all in capital letters, to receive 40% off your initial purchase and an additional 15% discount on subsequent orders with a subscription. Visit www.vivolife.co.uk to explore their complete range of products and discover how they can help you unleash your full potential.